Sid Barrett's bandmates watched in sick astonishment as their lead singer and guitarist stood at the front of the stage. His face appeared to be melting. Barrett, the mind and soul behind Pink Floyd, looked out across the audience at the Cheetah Club in Venice, California, as he strummed a single chord on his mirror-covered Fender Telecaster. In 1967, an audience watching Pink Floyd was ready for anything. Pink Floyd revolutionized the live experience as they played long interstellar jams as movie projectors flashed images and smoke swirled around the ever-moving people lit up on acid. Usually, the audience grooved to their individual rhythms as much as to the collective consciousness and rode whatever wave the band was on. But like any mystical journey, there was a danger of being seduced by the ecstasy, of mistaking one's hopes and expectations for the truer union and getting blasted across the universe as a result. The audience might have thought the ghastly strobing visage of Barrett was part of the spectacle, but what they were really seeing was a young man at the peak of his powers imploding. They were also witnessing a kaleidoscopic funhouse of mirrors, an ever-reflecting cascade of the occult's influence on rock and roll, and by extension, on all of pop culture. My ghoulies and my moth people, welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I'm joined by the hard rock duo, Jay and Rory Wicks. I don't really know if I classify as hard rock, but hello. You do today. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. guys ready to rock um are you ready to rock rock that was it's really sad yeah i know there wasn't a lot of energy in that i don't like a dying porpoise i'm not i don't that's not no (laughs) so uh today we are covering season of the witch how the occult saved rock and roll by peter biebergall who is an an old favorite on this show uh, back way back from episode three. Yeah. Can you believe we're on episode 21? No. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Like I looked at the number and I was like, that can't be right. I haven't read that many books ever. Oh, well, that's not true. Yeah, I know. My office is nothing but bookshelves. I can barely move in there now. Yeah. All right. So uh, you guys ready to hop in? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, I, th- this book is a goddamn tome. So we got a lot to dig into. You know, it's funny thing is when, when I picked it up, I was like, oh, this isn't too long. This will be fine. What I forgot was Peter Biebergall's magical ability to cram 300 pages of material into every single chapter. <laughs> yes. Somehow, some black magic. It is so dense, which, you know, I think we, we went to expect that. He, we tend to expect like a higher brow writing from him. Yeah. After yeah, our experience sure. with Strange Frequencies. And that this definitely delivered. 
Um, and you know, predictably a lot like strange frequencies. I know personally me, I struggled to get to what his point was because he doesn't hand it to you. You know, yeah, you got to work for it. Yeah. He gives you all the points that need to be connected to get to where he's going at least. And I hope I got to the right place, but we're going to find out. All right. Section one. Our story begins in 1978 when at the age of 11, author Peter Biebergall snuck into his brother's room with the intent of discovering the secrets of rock and roll. However, as he picked through the vinyl collection of Beatles, Led Zeppelin, David Bowie, and more, he discovered something else entirely. Quote, his music made me feel hot and cold at the same time, a small fire starting in my belly while shivers ran up my spine. Here was a seductive and impenetrable catalog of arcane and occult symbols, of magic and mystical pursuits, of strange rituals involving sex, spaceships, and fairies. I went into this room looking to hear some real rock and roll. I came out spellbound and hypnotized by the spectacle. The album art and the lyrics therein described fantastical worlds of perception, hinted at ancient secrets from the Far East, and titillated his young mind with dreams of a greater cosmic reality, a reality he and his friends tried to enter, experimenting with magic, mysticism, and at least one Ouija board. Little did he know he had, like so many before and since, fallen to the occult glamour of rock and roll. And in later years, this experience would drive him to explore how the occult came not only to influence rock, but how it forms the underlying bedrock of both rock and roll and modern music in general. However, far from a direct path, quote, it's best to imagine the occult roots of rock as an estuary. While early rock and roll can be traced directly to the blues, gospel, and folk, Rock's overall development was also shaped by jazz, experimental, and early electronic music, and even classical strains. In each of these influences, the occult is also present, often exhibiting the same characteristic. Artists looking for ways to revolt against convention by using the occult as both an inspiration and vehicle for their ideas. As Biebergall explains, Western music was once the purview of religion. All music was meant to glorify God, and in the Puritan view, secular music was a direct road to sin. To understand this viewpoint, we need to first look to ancient times, where most pagan religions featured ecstatic dance as a central element to their religious rites. The Christian anxiety over the supposed savagery of these people eventually led to the demonization of dance and music in general, a fear which endured long into the modern day with the church's condemnation of rock music as a tool of the devil meant to lead the youth into a life of sex, drugs, and degradation. This position, when it comes to rock, is further compounded by racist ideologies, which saw the blues, gospel, and African-American spirituals, all genres which led directly to rock and were dominated by black artists, as a call to the pagan barbarity of Africa. Furthermore, the occult themes and ideas which ran through these genres was seen as a threat to church authority. In the occult, there was the promise of self-actualization separate from the church. If one could, through a dance and a pulse-pounding beat, commune directly with God, spirits, or the universe, there would be no need for the clergy. In this way, the occult came to represent defiance against normative society, and specifically the control of the government or church. While Biebergall himself remains agnostic regarding the realities of occult beliefs, in this book, he seeks to argue that the occult is what gave rock its core identity and allowed it to become a vehicle through which artists and fans could not only explore alternative spirituality, but also use it as a means of social change. As both a mythic reference to and metaphor for rock and roll, 
he presents the myth of the Prince of Thebes, who foolishly angered the god of madness, Dionysus. The god had come to Thebes with his entourage of maenads to avenge the reputation of his mother, Simile, after she died trying to prove that she had been seduced by Zeus and demanded Zeus show her his true form to prove to everyone that she was not a liar. Sadly, the god's true visage incinerated her instantly. Upon entering the city, Dionysus turned his aunt Agave and her sisters, the women who had doubted Simile, into Bachant, wild women who soon ran to the hills to join with the rest of the god's followers. Hearing of this, Agave's son, the king of Thebes, Pentheus, had Dionysus, then disguised as one of his own priests, arrested. During questioning, it became obvious that while the king had an intense disdain for the gods' frivolities, he was also intensely curious. So, Dionysus convinced the king to dress as a woman and spy on the gathering outside town to better know the enemy. Naturally, the revelers saw through his disguise immediately and tore him to pieces. Ha ha! <laughs> like one does. To Bibergall, this myth captures both the spirit and pitfalls of rock and roll. Quote, Rock also taps into the Dionysian principle in its tragic forms. Pentheus secretly wanted to participate in the secret rites, but he is not properly initiated. He wants the thrill without the sacrifice, but the gods demand it, and so Pentheus is destroyed. This is Rock's perpetual misfortune, where the lure of the ecstatic, often by way of intoxication, resulted in various forms of tragedy, including madness and death. Biebergall begins this exploration with the blues one of the formative influences which gave Rock its early sound. In the American South, fear of magic, specifically African sorcerers, was ripe during both the slavery and post-slavery years. Voodoo was a tradition born from the Haitian Revolution, which saw many freed slaves from Louisiana integrate into the country. They brought along the religion of their former masters and mixed it with the occult practices of European traditions and the original Yoruba legends from Africa to create something new. Voodoo. And as this new spirituality found its way to and spread within the United States, it was soon adopted by blues musicians looking for a way to declare their own agency. Black identity in America at the time was church-centric and their music of the gospel variety. Blues, on the other hand, sang about matters of the physical world, poverty, subjugation, sex, and relationships, and as such, it was seen as the devil's music. The emotionally explicit sound humanized the trials of former slaves and more so suggested that when bad things happened, there was something you could do about it via the occult. Bad at guitar? Go to a crossroads and sell your soul. Lady won't give you the time of day? Your local priestess has a potion for that. In this way, the music became a way of escaping the strict control of the church and through the occult provided a marginalized people a sense of control over their destiny. And it was the same rebellious spirit which would go on to influence the core of what became rock and roll. And of course, we can't talk rock without first talking about Elvis. Having grown up in a Pentecostal church where music, dance, and ecstatic speaking in tongues were common forms of worship, all elements taken from African-American churches. The Pentecostal church that he was a part of is a part of the Assemblies of God. Which is what I was a part of. Oh, cool. I know. I thought of that when I got to that part of the book. Like, oh, hi, baby. Yeah. Dance had always been part of Elvis's life, which became problematic when he took those hip-shaken vibes out of the church and into his own secular music. People thought that, with each twinge of the hips and thrust of the crotch, Elvis was luring the youth of the country to carnal doom. 
which confused Elvis greatly as he has quoted, quote, they said I was controversial and there were some preachers who actually said that my music was dirty and I was leading kids to hell. They even had a bonfire and burned my records and albums. Can you imagine that? Hell, all I did was what came naturally, what I learned when I was a little kid in church, moving my body to the music. And I read it like that because I cannot do an Elvis impersonation. That That's fine. <laughs> the reason for this fear, in Biebergall's opinion, is rooted deeply in the fear of non-Christian, specifically African forms of spirituality. African religions tended to be animistic in nature, where everything was understood to be part of a greater manifestation of spirit. It was a world filled with minor gods and devils who could be bargained with directly, as the true creator god was seen as something so far removed from the world that it wasn't picking up the phone anymore. These entities were invoked through dance, song, and ritualized ecstasy, traditions which the slave masters tried their best to destroy and replace with the patriarchal control of the church. However, dance as a form of worship endured. In secret, slaves still sang the shout. This was a form of circle dancing and song, which they believed allowed them to directly commune with God, hence bypassing both the church and their master's wishes. The shout eventually transformed into rancorous gospel music in the post-slavery years, and from that, the blues. However, white evangelicals never quite gave up on their fear of the tradition and the inherent belief that dance was intensely sexual in nature, a belief which remained strong when Elvis hit the scene. One example being the book Close the Bedroom Door by Lambert and Patricia Schuler, which claimed, quote, teenagers have been taught to love it, rock, and never does it cross their minds that this incessant emphasis upon the Negro with its repulsive love songs and vulgar rhythms is but a psychological preliminary to close body contact between the races. A statement which is exactly as insane as it sounds but was indicative of the kind of ingrained prejudices which dance and bi-relation rock stood in opposition to. As Biebergall argues, however, it is this very rejection of rock that ensured rock's survival. It became a symbol for magic, sorcery, sex, paganism, and in turn, freedom from authority. For the youth, its rebellious spirit echoed their own internal turmoil and spoke more closely to the actual struggles of their lives than any church music ever had. More than music, this same spirit showed up in the books and poems of the 1950s, which began to dream of a world liberated from religious restrictions where one could embrace the elements of the human experience that the youth believed were denied to them. And for inspiration, they once again turned their eyes to the old world. From Eastern philosophies to the folkloric traditions of Europe, blues, jazz, and bebop stripped the old religions to their core and worked to integrate them into the everyday lives of the downtrodden. And it was from them that an idea began to emerge which would come to dominate rock music through the 1960s. One born on wings of gurus and bodhisattvas from the East, who taught, quote, Heaven is on earth now. We had never been parted from it. There is no duality tearing the world apart. No devil trading musical secrets for souls. God is not in the starry heaven above. God is within you. Which leads us to our first discussion question. So, Let's talk about dance and song as it relates to magic. As one of humanity's oldest traditions that we know of, it seems to me that human beings by nature just like to get their boogie on, even when doing so threatens their very lives, as we see with the shout. 
Do you see any sort of mystical or metaphysical reasons for our obsession with getting jiggy? Or do you think the drive is more cultural or biological in nature? Here's the thing is, I I don't think that those two answers are necessarily mutually exclusive. I think that something being deeply ingrained in us to a biological level can make it inherently mystical because it brings us back to the roots of what we are. Uh, like you mentioned, you mentioned the African slaves still performing the shout despite pain of death. Um, a very similar thing happened in the Soviet Union, where despite knowing they could be thrown in jail or executed by their government for having foreign goods, there were still people uh, on the black market purchasing American records. Uh, there's actually an, an amazing phenomenon, uh, the the X-ray records, where one of the ways because, you know, they couldn't get their hands on vinyl. So records would be pressed into um, into old X-ray sheets. Oh, that's so cool. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. I want one. Yeah, that'd be dope. Can you imagine having that as an artifact? Like in it would Elvis was one of the ones that was actually very popular among Soviet citizens for X-ray records. Um, Interesting. I don't necessarily want to own an Elvis record, but I don't want if it was an X-ray yeah. record just for the sake of having it. I, I think it'd be kind of cool to have a Rolling Stones record oh, like, yeah. on an X-ray record. Stones are, oh God, no, the dream is Bowie. Yeah. Or that's my dream right there. Yeah, no, I agree. The dream is Bowie. That would be fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I and... And as for the mysticism, I think that altered states of consciousness are so essential for human beings to be able to kind of see beyond the limiting perspective of growing up in a materialist society. And dance and music are some of the biggest ones, but obviously people can also accomplish that through drugs, through intense meditation, um, the feeling that people des- that uh, that avid runners describe when they hit runners high honestly sounds very, very simple. It's very similar to me as to the blissed out state that Tibetan monks will and ant- will enter during intensive mm. meditation. But getting back to the main point, I I do think that it is likely for us biological in nature i think it i think it just goes back to the fact that making rhythmic sounds in different like in different patterns was what we had before we had speech and we body language is so essential to us that people who were born blind still gesture to emphasize points mm-hmm. that they are making and gr- groups of people who were born blind will gesture to each other despite all of them being aware that they can't see it. I didn't know that either. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. That's a great answer. Yeah. So I, and I think that's what evolved into our, into like our love of dance and all of that stuff. And like, um, you guys know, obviously I'm on the autistic spectrum and how sometimes I'll just stand up and run from one yeah. room to another because gotta go fast, got to go fast. It's a very fun stim for me. And a lot of autistic people do similar things. And I think it's rooted in the same thing that before it kind of got trained out of us to live in polite society, we would just randomly start drumming on shit or be mm-hmm. like, hey, what would it be like if I stood on my hands for an hour? You know, it just makes me think also, you know, you go back and to any of these traditions, you know, what slaves didn't have access to, uh, you know, ceremonial daggers or cauldrons or any of the sorts of things that they might have used for their religious rites. 
But dance and song is something you can do when you have nothing but your body. Yep. So it is almost this kind of primal base form of worship or uh, magic in the sense that it is, I guess, the thing that you are using to enter into the occult imagination, uh, which is a concept we're going to talk a lot about a lot about over the course of this episode, because it's one that's very important to Peter Biebergall's work. Mm -hmm. uh, so real quick, before we continue, a quick definition as far as we understand it is the occult imagination is the space in which occult belief exists. Uh, it is the ability to say, look at a synchronicity and see it as a synchronicity and not just a, a coincidence. It is the act of looking for mystical meaning in the world. Yes, the, the act of connecting the dots. Yeah, and generally speaking, for people who are doing magic, um, often enough, you need something to kind of to help push you into that state, uh, to complete the circuit, to make yourself kind of forget yourself and believe fully. And so maybe that's what dance and song can do for people. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that. I mean, again, you go back, I, I can't think of a single ancient religion that didn't use some form of chanting. Yep. So I guess that means it's my turn to answer the question. I suppose so, yeah. Yeah, I should have gone first um, because I'm not going to be able to to top Jay's answer there. Like, that was was very good. Uh, ultimately. I didn't know you guys were competing. I mean, we're not technically. I'm going to start keeping score and being biased. I don't, I don't want that. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> you don't know the type of person I turn into when there's a grade on the line. <laughs> um. But I, I, I agree. I think it's more biology than anything else. However, um, I think because it is something so biological in nature to us, because, I mean, in lo look at any culture, dance is a huge thing. You know, well, not necessarily a huge thing, but dance is a thing. Yeah. You know, you, you feel it naturally in your bones when you hear the music that just agrees with your soul. You just want to move. I'm not a dancer and I get that that feeling like, you know, I rock out in my chair, like air drumming and shit to to music. That's that's my way of expressing that same uh, that same kind of feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, I, I mean, I, I have danced in the past, but that's not the point. M my point is um while it is biological in nature, I don't think that that takes away any mystical aspects from it. I, if dance is something that is important to you, it is absolutely something that could be utilized in your mystic, your, your magic. True. You know, uh, like, uh, you know, music is another really good example of that. People love music. I love music. I use music in my magic. You know, it helps me get to that place you know, to help me perform or, or do whatever it is that I'm, that, I, that I'm going to do. And if dance is that thing that helps you get into that zone, like Jay was saying, like, you know, runners, when they get in a run, get the runners high, like if dance is what gets you there, then do it, you know? And it, because, and maybe because it is something that's so biological to us, just the, that want to move, that it makes it even more powerful for that person, that it is connected already to them individually and is something that's biological. Maybe that makes it even more potent for that, for that individual than it would be if they were just trying to meditate. Uh, it makes know? a lot of sense. Well, and one thing, I mean, from a metaphysical perspective, one thing that I couldn't stop thinking about, because you're talking about there about how, I guess, when the music resonates with your soul. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Nikola Tesla who said like all of the world is can be understood in a vibration, mm -hmm. you know, vibrational rates and how energy interacts because everything is energy. Yeah. Or at least that's what he claimed. Um, the point being, what if the reason that happens is because 
some songs literally vibrate at the same frequency that you exist on. That 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 like your specific uh, soul fingerprint, whatever it is, that song just happens to hit it at the right note. There is absolutely no way that that's not a thing in one form or another. And I will give you an example. Um, so the three of us plus other people, or actually, I don't think you were there for this, the initial instance of this, when we were watching that stoop, that stupid movie, it's not actually a stupid movie. Um, which movie? Sing? Nope. Though it's a, it is a cartoon though. Uh, this is the one that Reese and I like fucking lost our minds to. Over the moon. Yeah, over the moon. When we saw that, like when I first heard that, that one song. Ultra Luminary. Ultra Luminary in there. It like hit some part of me so hard that I was completely gone from the rest of the world. I was just zoned in on on the song and the, 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 the you know, the performance in the in the movie. Uh, and then I made them, uh, you know, Reese and I made made uh, us watch it again because it yes. was so like it hit me so hard. And I listened to that song for like three weeks straight, nonstop. And I still listen to it all the time. It just hit me. And I don't listen to pop music. Right. Yeah. You, you know what? You know, it's interesting. I actually had a similar thing recently. Um, the song that they use for the intro of Peacemaker, Do You Really Want to Taste It by Wigwam? I don't know what it was. I listened to it on loop for three days just because. It, it hit it hit some joy button deep inside my soul. It, it it gave you the juice. Yeah. All right. So are we ready to move into section two? Let's go. Okay. At the dawn of the 1960s, the Christian white mainstream in America, through soft-spoken, danceless artists like Pat Boone, attempted to neuter rock and roll by enfolding it into the Christian ideology and sensibilities of mainstream America. An attempt which nearly succeeded had it not been for the rise of British rock. Bands like The Who and The Beatles looked back to rock's roots and blues, and through that, gave birth to the LSD-soaked generation of music which synthesized Eastern mysticism, mythology, and occultism to create a new form of music which, the artists believed, could transmit real spiritual truths. We begin with an examination of Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd. Sid sought through his elaborate costumes, utilization of light shows, and unique sounds to put his audience into a trance state through which he could suck them into his world of psychedelic wisdom, fantasy, and space-age futurism. Acting as a shaman to his hippie fans, Barrett was part of a larger revival of older romantic ideas that reason and industry were incompatible with the natural world, leading to a deep yearning for a direct spiritual interface with the universe. And Barrett, whose songs reference Pan, Astral Travel, Gnomes, and the I Ching, seemed exactly the sort of wise man who could lead his flock into their new spiritual frontier. Though, as Barrett soon learned himself, to experiment with one's consciousness was a path that could yield great reward and great tragedy. Barrett, like many in the 1960s, experimented heavily with psychedelic drugs. To say the least. Yeah, eventually leading to his own self-destruction and total mental breakdown on stage during a show in November of 1967. I got so sad reading this whole section. Yeah. Barrett had, like so many others in the 1960s, been looking for better ways to shortcut through the hard work of meditation and instead directly tap into the cosmic source, meaning God or the perennial philosophy, etc. And at the time, many believed LSD was not just a possible path to the divine, but the best path. And there are many reasons for this, according to Biebergall. 
The LSD experience has much in common with the experiences reported by those who have delved into Eastern philosophies. The ego death experienced during the trip was seen as synonymous with the Buddhist notion of ego transcendence, and the feeling of oneness with the universe hearkened to pantheism, the belief that God is in everything. This was a powerful idea at the time, not only due to the strength of the trip, but also because to many it represented a form of rebellion against the approved pathways to God. To understand this period, one must remember that the youth at the time had just come out of the shadows of World War II and the 1950s with its shining promises of a new golden age for humanity. As they grew, they found that promise had lost its luster. Systematic oppression, racial issues, and violence stood as clear signs that the current system wasn't working, especially for those at the margins. And there was a prevailing belief that part of the problem was the church, which had failed to answer the social issues of the time. As Biebergall writes, quote, The notion that a mystical experience could exist independent of any religious community was radical indeed, and for a generation desperately seeking some divine connection without being pinned down to any kind of tradition or hierarchy, it was just the thing the hippies were after. While Barrett was crushed by the weight of his spiritual visions, another group offered a path to enlightenment that was a little more kind on the body. While the Beatles had never shied away from their use of LSD and even espoused its benefits for a time, they did not fully embrace mysticism until George Harrison suggested they go see Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Harrison had long been interested in transcendental meditation and hoped to learn from the famous guru. As he and the rest of the Beatles soon found, transcendental meditation offered a safer, softer path to enlightenment. After meeting with the yogi, they then went to a private retreat with him to learn more. And when they emerged, they brought along the Eastern mysticism, which would shape not only their coming albums, but all of rock music for the next decade. In the years following, the Beatles became spiritual figures to many, adventurers who had gone far and brought back strange teachings from other lands. In this way, they acted as mediators between the toils of middle and lower class life and the dream of a greater cosmic truth. And their music, now featuring the sitar, an instrument never before heard in the West, came to dominate hippie culture. In fact, it wouldn't be long until the haunting whispers of sitars could be heard from most bands in the counterculture scene. And while their relationship with the yogi would soon end after some salacious accusations came to light about the yogi's behavior around young women. What? No. <laughs> the Beatles' position as a source of mystic knowledge would remain entrenched. And in this, Biebergall sees a lesson. The Beatles, like many bands, covered their albums in esoteric symbols and occult imagery without any real intention to convey arcane secrets. Rather, they saw inspiration in the mystic. However, that did not stop fans and critics alike from poring over their lyrics, hunting for bits of celestial truth within the jams. Of course, this led to endless conspiracy theories, such as the Paul is Dead fiasco. But it also exposes the relationship between the viewer and the medium when viewed through the occult imagination. Despite what the Beatles may have intended, people still took divine inspiration from their words and may have found within themselves certain spiritual truths they would not have otherwise. In this way, the question of the reality of magic is moot from the perspective of our objective consensus reality. Rather, the viewer is able to create their own liminal reality by engaging with the work, a state in which the lines between truth and fiction blur. 
However, despite whatever mystic vistas the youth may have been enjoying, the powers that be were having none of it. There was a growing call to outlaw LSD in California, and in response, the hippie movement gathered for the Human Be-In, a counterculture event in Golden Gate Park, where the various voices of the counterculture movement gathered to determine how best to fight back and secure their version of freedom, meaning not only political or social liberation, but spiritual liberation, the freedom to explore one's own consciousness. Towards that end, even the non-spiritual hippies got in on the occult fun, using it as a powerful symbol of defiance against the Christian majority. One such example being a political stunt organized by activist Abby Hoffman, who gathered a large group to encircle the Pentagon and conduct magical rituals to levitate the building as a form of performance protest. Can you imagine if that had succeeded? Uh, <laughs> fuck, that would have been crazy. I think we'd live in a very different world if one day the Pentagon just started drifting slowly into the sky. You're correct. Now, despite their efforts, LSD was outlawed, and the collapse of the summer of love and heavy drug use, poverty, and death put an end to the hippie movement. As for the occult, mainstream America did what it always does to make safe the dangerous and rebellious. They commercialized it. Reincarnation, horoscopes, and occult imagery became vogue, common, and as such, were stripped of its power, reducing rock to sugary pop music without a core identity of its own. It is in this environment that we find Scottish artist Donovan, who, while playing his guitar at a party, found himself mesmerized by a particular riff. That riff would go on to become the classic Season of the Witch, a foreboding song lamenting the errors of the 60s and looking ahead to the excesses of the 70s with trepidation. At the same time, Wicca was growing in popularity among the youth, and to the horror of church officials, there was a resurgence in supernatural beliefs. Only, this time, it was without the enlightened philosophies of Eastern gurus, or the hope that true love would heal the world. Dionysus had returned to get the party going again, and this time, he brought darkness with him. Which is going to bring us to our second discussion question. In occult or esoteric studies, a common theme one might note is the frequent use of drugs by many notable thinkers. Aleister Crowley had intense addictions, as did the chain-smoking Helena Blavatsky, not to mention the rock stars we'll be discussing today. Do you think that drugs can be a viable path to arcane or spiritual truths, or is it a pitfall luring you in with the promises of self-actualization but delivering only destruction? All right. I have feelings on this question. Thought you might. <laughs> I think there are kind of two parts to my answer. So, do I think that drugs can be a viable path to arcane or spiritual truths? Yes. I just don't think it's the right one. Okay. We're going to have to ask you to clarify that. I, I'm, I'm going to. Okay. Let me specify. Drugs like LSD specifically i don't think are the right the the right way to get there do i think that there's something that they do something to your brain and maybe give you a taste of what that enlightenment is or maybe even let you see see you know the connections the dots the you know what how, however you want to say it yeah i think that's possible i just don't think that that pro outweighs the cons that come with the use of drugs like lsd okay um, and I think there, and I think that's because that drug specifically, with one hit, 
you could ruin your life forever. We we both know someone who that happened to. Mind you, he took six on his first try, but yes. Yeah. Um, and I've done acid. So I, you know, I, I know what it can do. I've had some pretty crazy experiences on acid. Um, but ultimately it's kind of like, I, I don't want to, yeah, it kind of, it's kind of like cheating. Okay. You, you get a taste for it, for, for that, 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 that sense of enlightenment, that seeing things the way that you want, you know, that seeing things the way that we, that we talk about seeing it, right? You get a taste for it and then you want it and you want it. So you do more and you do more and you do more and you do more. And eventually you are so overtaken by the addiction that the seeking enlightenment and trying to find the truths in the world is second to getting the next high. Okay. And so I think that when it comes to the, to a drug like LSD specifically, it's too dangerous. Even if you do get, uh, you get a glimpse of it. And even if you only do it once or twice, I personally, I think it is just far too dangerous. Now, I do not think the same thing about shrooms because shrooms, um, you can take a reasonable dose, you could microdose, and it is proven to be very helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Both in your everyday life, if you have something like PTSD, depression, and anxiety. And if you take, you know, take an eighth or a quarter, depending on your tolerance level, you can you can you can see you can see sounds and feel colors you know what what whatever mm-hmm. um and it can be it can be a grand old time and you get a very uh you get a very similar sense you don't get the same kind of uh out of this world hallucinations that you do on acid sometimes you do but most of the time you don't a lot of it is just a sense of of uh like lightweighted like lightweightedness airiness your mind has been opened and things are brighter um, and, and more colorful and more potent. And, you know, that, that's a lot of what you're going to feel on shrooms. Like my, you, you get this leg tingle that is insane. You know, it's a, it's a feeling like anything else that I've, that I've ever had in my life. Cause of course I've done shrooms too. In fact, I've done them both at the same time, but that's not the point. Um, and no one at home should do this. No, God, no, <laughs> please do not ever do if I talk about my drug use, do not ever do the things that I did, period. End of conversation. Don't do it. <laughs> it is not worth it. Um, but I don't, I don't, I think, and I, and, and this is my, my biggest thing. If you're, if you're, your goal here is that I'm trying to seek enlightenment, don't do it the drug way. Do it the hard way. It reminds me of, um, something I've commonly seen reported by people who've done DMT. Uh, A common, uh, I guess, vision people have during DMT trips are these machine elves, which are these bizarre otherworldly entities that seem to run the mechanism of the universe of some sort. At least that's my understanding. Um, I have never done DMT. Nor nor have I. Yeah. And but the interesting thing is I've seen it come up in several uh, of people's trips when they've, you know, come back and transcribe what they experienced where they the they knew that the elves loved them and it was this you know that sort of cosmic all encompassing perfect love but 
the elves also usually would tell them is like, not not like this. Like you're supposed to come here, but not like you're doing it right now. So maybe you're right. Maybe it is a way to uh, tip how to dip your toe in the water. Yeah. And prove to yourself that that realm exists. So, you know what you're working towards. But I, I think I agree that uh, they, I think that as I mean, many rock stars had discovered at some point, the urge to do it o- overshadows the quest for knowledge. And I, and I want to point out one thing here, too, is I'm not saying that things like drugs can't be used to help you in this way, uh, because I smoke a metric crap load of pot um and i i use that in my my personal magic practice and i think it helps because pot for me it helps you know calm my mind down and lets me focus in on whatever whatever i'm thinking about it makes meditating for me that much easier you know so i i'm not saying that there aren't things that can be done like you there aren't uses uh you know for these things but using a drug like LSD or, or, or DMT, um, it's, I, I just don't think that that's the way that you're going to actually get to this full you know, feeling of enlightenment that, you, that some of these people were striving for. That makes sense. Jay, what do you think? By and large, I, I agree with what Rory is saying. But to, to add my own particular thoughts, I, I feel the need to point out that... Uh, being told the truth about life and the universe and reality is not nearly the same thing as comprehending it. Um, be, if, if that was the same thing, everyone would become enlightened the moment a Buddhist master told them you are nothing and all that is around you is also nothing. But that's not how it works. You get told the truth and then you need to spend years and years and years meditating in a temple and i think a lot of i think that they're like like rory said people become addicted to this very shallow this very shallow version of enlightenment that they can get from taking massive doses of hallucinogenics and then they come down from that trip and they think that all their work is done and they're like no i'm enlightened i'm a buddhist it's all fucking groovy man and it's like <laughs> you're eating meat motherfucker it's like right. and it, 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 it so i yeah i think i think drugs can be uh like exactly like rory said i think drugs can be an incredible addition to the work that people are doing spiritually but they are not a shortcut they are not a substitution for the intense spiritual work that needs to go into it it would be kind of like instead of us reading a book and then talking about it we all took a couple hits of acid looked at the cover of the book and then talked about it yeah basically so now i know what we're gonna do for our 101 episode special I'm not going to do ass. Uh, no, it, no, it would just be us screaming for three hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, when I was in the hospital, I, and was on all the, those painkillers, I hallucinated. I know what's in my subconscious and no, thank you. I don't want to meet them again. I'm still trying to find you a six foot pencil though. Fetch me a six foot pencil. I wish to doodle on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> And I think I think that that addiction to shallow interpretations of enlightenment is also what leads to this um, 
constant fetishization yet deep misunderstanding of Eastern traditions by Western mystics of like that that example I gave of people who call themselves Buddhist and then you ask them, what are you doing for your sangha? And they stare at you like there's lobsters crawling out of your ears. And it's like, oh, you don't even know what that means. And like, I, I know I'm, I know I'm sounding mean now and I'm not even a Buddhist, but that shit deeply annoys me because it's like the, these are these are sacred practices that are just as much a religion as Christianity is. Yes. And you're treating them like these fun little doodads that you think automatically make you better than other people in anti-establishment. And you read half a Wikipedia page on them. And like, that's. And I think people honestly treat drugs as the same way that they think doing something that is illegal and sexy and dangerous is as the same thing as is the same thing as breaking out of these deeply entrenched cultural mores that are holding you back. And it's not the same thing at all. You can't speed run enlightenment. And, and I think that's yes. Like I that is Yes. Correct. Articulate, Rory as ever. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I just uh, like this specifically. I guess, like I said at the beginning of when I was talking, is I have a lot of feelings here. Doesn't mean I can articulate them all very well. It's just, I think you hit the nail on the head. You can't speed run enlightenment, and I think that hits me real hard because I'm not saying that I'm seeking enlightenment, though arguably, I I am right because through uh, my practice in druidry, it's very similar to uh, seeking after nirvana or samsara or something like that. Ultimately, it's all just a metaphor for enlightenment. I, I agree with what you guys have been saying about, you know, there is no speed running enlightenment. I do think there is probably value, like you guys said, in certain practices where it's done ritualistically. Like I'm yeah. thinking about uh, Native American tribes doing peyote for religious purpose. Absolutely. And I think if used to augment an already spiritual experience, it can be incredibly powerful and impactful and can change lives. Absolutely. But if you're but the point, I guess so the point is it need the spiritual experience is, needs to be primary. It is a tool to get you there. It can't be the tool that gets you yep. there. Well, and it can't be the whole experience. It can't yeah. be I did acid. So it was a spiritual experience. It's like no, they have a whole ceremony. They have rites and rituals to put the person to the right frame of mind before they're drugged. Yep. Or I'm thinking of uh, people going on ayahuasca trips to South America. Mm -hmm. the, the good ones, you have a Peruvian shaman who walks you through what's going to happen, who prepares you, who sings over you, who's watching over you, who make it more of a ritualized event. And that then I think you can probably get glean some wisdom from it. No, absolutely. I uh, again, I I do something very similar myself with using marijuana in my own practice. I yeah, I read tarot much better when I'm stoned. Yeah, I do nothing better when I'm stoned. I am useless when I'm stoned. <laughs> that's not true. You just haven't tried. I mean, that's true. I But here's the thing. I try very little when I'm stoned. Yeah. And also like uh, like Huxley in this section of the book, I fully believe that Huxley achieved enlightenment while on mescaline, but he'd also been studying the Vanta practice for years. His soul was in a position where it was ready to receive the truth, fully process it, integrate it into his understanding of his own life and carry it out into the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. a, a teenager in Iowa that's grown up in a Methodist church and has never 
fully comprehended that people that live outside of his town are just as human as he is, is not going to have the same experience if you suddenly start shooting him up with fucking whatever. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. So are we ready to move to section three? Let's do it. Woo! One year before Woodstock, the dark clouds had already begun to gather on the horizon. Rising social issues, violence, and increasingly authoritarian crackdowns from the state were breaking the once bright spirit of a generation and turning their hopes to fear and anger. And in the midst of this, one rock band looked ahead and, in a moment of stunning prophecy, saw that the decade to come would be an era of darkness, strife, and struggle. A decade belonging to Satan. Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones styled himself as the modern devil in a dandy, a sexual seducer meant not to inspire fear, but to beguile the youth to his side. This was, as Biebergall argues, a taciturn attempt to turn back from the enlightened mysticisms of the East and to re-inject the blues into rock, presenting a shadowy world where the devil's puppet strings were everywhere and the unwary traveler may just end up selling their soul for a tune. As Biebergall writes, quote, Jagger's bold public recognition that the devil was alive and well, not only in the roots of rock and roll, but in the storm clouds darkening the whimsical mysticism of the counterculture, would shift rock and roll again. The occult imagination would begin its slow turn away from gurus and astrological love charts towards a more sinister horizon, charting rock's course anew and saving it from what was becoming a neutered psychedelic commercialism. One important thing to note here is that Mick Jagger wasn't alone in this cultural turn. Movies like The Devil Rides Out kicked off a long string of Satan-centric films. Well, The Wicker Man taught mainstream masses that those hippie pagan cults were exactly as evil and barbaric as they feared. Mick Jagger, like many artists, drew inspiration from these films to construct his own identity, and in doing so, created what many would consider the model rock star persona— he represented sex, drugs, a lavish party life, and most dangerous of all, dark occult powers which stood in defiance of both church and polite society. And he would play this role well, though not for long. In 1969, at a concert at the Altamont Speedway, a fan was stabbed to death by a member of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang who had been hired on as extra security for the concert. After the tragedy, which many point to as the moment the hippies' fabled Aquarian Age died, Mick Jagger felt less comfortable presenting himself as the Prince of Darkness. Instead, he turned his attention to the hard blues roots of rock. Yet, Old Scratch was here to stay. With the collapse of the hippie movement, fans were looking for a new spiritual center, and the coming age promised just that, a dark, rebellious truth wrapped in black magic and leather pants. Another leader in this regard is Led Zeppelin and guitarist Jimmy Page, who had the motto of famous occultist Aleister Crowley, do what thou wilt, etched on a master copy of their Zeppelin III album. Page had long been interested in Crowley and saw him as a misunderstood genius. While he would never publicly admit to practicing magic himself, and in later interviews would grow frustrated at how often people asked, he did spend a great amount of money buying up old Crowley manuscripts, as well as Crowley's manor on the shores of Loch Ness. All of which, to many in mainstream America, were clear signs that Led Zeppelin was in league with the devil. Adding to the sinister reputation was their use of other occult or magical elements from pop culture, often intermingling real occultism with fictional fantasy, 
referencing Lord of the Rings, Hobbits, and the Misty Mountains in the same breath as Crowley. To fans, this gave a sense of reality to the fictional elements, allowing the songs to inhabit that liminal zone between truth and fiction, where, as Biebergall argues, the occult imagination makes real the impossible. And for some, the gateway of fantasy and myth could only lead to one thing, sin. Quote, for detractors of rock, it didn't take long to diagnose the post-Aquarian age as a time of excess, exemplified by popular music. Religious leaders saw rock and roll as the worst form of hedonism. It contained all the wickedest offenses, intoxication, sex, and gender fluidity. Loud, aggressive music, often drawn from the blues, a troublesome, primitive form of music, and social rebellion. Biebergall then turns his attention to another crowned prince of darkness, Ozzy Osbourne. While Ozzy himself would claim that he was a Christian and that all the occult and satanic imagery laced through his music was for show, his dark persona and the music of his band Black Sabbath would win him a reputation as the devil's favorite singer. Despite this, Ozzy claimed his primary inspiration was not Satan, but horror, specifically the horror comics that were rising in prominence in the 1970s. From that, Ozzy was attempting to build a brand with which to sell the band. In fact, the majority of the songs which reference the devil do so in warning. In War Pigs, it is the devil who laughs over the corpses of the fallen. And in The Wizard, we see a benevolent user of magic banishing demons, not summoning them. Quote, Almost every reference to the devil or evil doings is met by a warning. In this respect, Black Sabbath is more like a biblical prophet than a tempter who mocks Jesus in the desert. Yet, in a sense, the contents of their songs didn't matter as much as what people projected onto them and bands like them. Christians could look to Sabbath and see the dark imagery and come away believing that Satan's agents were walking free on earth, while the youth could listen to the same songs and find in them a hopeful call for rebellion and self-agency. Of course, to concerned parents, there wasn't a difference here, as Rock's call to reject authority and embrace the urgings of their loins was seen as no different as Satan offering to buy your soul in exchange for a quick fuck in the alleyway. This culture of fear was only exacerbated when Anton LaVey founded the Church of Satan. Rather than a den of darkness, this was just a place for 30-somethings to cosplay Satanists and have orgies. But regardless, the media and mainstream took this as proof of what they believed all along, that Satanists were all around you. They could be your neighbor, your child's friend, their teacher, and maybe even that leather-clad gentleman singing on stage. Coupled with the Manson murders later on, which Charles Manson blamed the Beatles for, the country was entering into a dizzy of fear and satanic paranoia. Charles Manson! <laughs> which bands like Covenant Black Widow capitalized on with their connections to witchcraft, another source of spiritual anxiety at the time. Coven featured a 13-minute satanic mass on one album, which was reported to be authentic, though in truth mixed folklore, fiction, and some medieval texts. Whereas Black Widow's sinister reputation was born from their manager, Alex Sanders, also known as the King of Witches. Sanders had founded a new branch of Wicca, which is still prominent today, Alexandrian Wicca. All of which came together to reinforce Rock's core identity, rooted in rebellion against the mainstream. As Biebergall notes, quote, It is the spiritual rebellion at the heart of Rock, whose blood is oxygenated by the occult. There is no better way to announce you are dangerous and a force to be reckoned with. As boringly ubiquitous as it would become, 
an upside-down pentagram on an album cover became a not-so-coded message that inside the record sleeve, or CD jewel case, was music not governed by mundane sensibilities. However, Satan and Darkness were only one of multiple attempts to find the new soul of rock in the post-Aquarian age. As artists like Arthur Brown of The Crazy World of Arthur Brown found, myth, fantasy, and magic were an equally rich tapestry to pull from. Which brings us to our third discussion question. So in this chapter, Biebergall hits on a theme which comes up several times in this book. That is, that the interplay between the art and the viewer is where occult meaning is derived. Do you think that the intent of the artist, in this case, the decision by some rock artists to embrace occult imagery to build their brand, matters from a metaphysical perspective here? Can real magic be predicated on a lie? Yes, I, I, think, I think it can be. Death of the author is a concept for a reason, that it's like the moment you put a piece of art out into the world, um, the people who encounter and interact with it start doing things with it that you kind of never anticipated that they would. Fan fiction. Well, yes. <laughs> and also Charles Manson going like, the Beatles made me kill all those people. And it's like, no, Charles Manson, you're just an idiot who was trying to bang hippie chicks in the desert. And then you're like, oh boy, this is getting out of hand. I mean, to be fair, he did successfully bang hippie chicks in the desert. He did successfully bang hippie chicks in the desert. And then a bunch of people died. Yeah. Yep. Um, like you, like you said, it's the interaction between the stimulus and the stimulated mm -hmm. and things can, things can come out of that, that nobody really intended. And I think this is especially prevalent in this, this era that Biebergall is exploring when it comes to Satanism in particular, because the version of Satan that we Satan was created by by initially created by the Catholic Church to just serve as an archetypal other of kind of like it. It's easy to keep people in line when you can stick a very specific face and a very specific name to the thing that you're trying to keep them safe from. And I think I think that's especially relevant in this era because that's basically how we got even our current cultural concept of the devil is is through basically the, the 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 church the christian establishment would stick this very specific name and this very specific face to the world that existed outside their borders and boundaries and control and therefore people that wanted to buck against those chains had a very specific thing that they could go and grab onto and appropriate and put forward as their symbol of of counterculture and as like as we saw with uh with protestant churches and kind of that more rhythm and blues gospel music them starting to appropriate that to put it back into their ceremonies to draw those people back it it just becomes this endless symbiotic cycle between the devil and christianity of they're just yes anding each other and so basically, yes, I think occult meaning and magical power can be derived even if you don't necessarily intend that because Tolkien wasn't trying to 
wasn't actually trying to create this whole occult system of understanding the magical world, but that's what people did with it. Uh I've encountered online covens where it's like, oh, yeah, when you join us, you have to take a craft name that's uh, from Tolkien's Elvish. And it's like, why? They're like, because we think it has inherent magical power. Why? And it's like, because it does. Because we think it does. Well, I mean, well, there's something to that. And taken to its most extreme form, I'm thinking of chaos magic. Yep. Uh, the idea, especially the those that believe within chaos magic, that you can name anything your deity. Because mm-hmm. as long as you can take some spiritual guidance from it and you're thinking about it, it will become real in your specific reality. Yep. So you could have Batman as your god. And you worship Batman, and eventually you're empowered by Batman. I and also there's a you remember that that movie from several decades ago, The Craft, and uh, uh, there's a very interesting story behind that. The 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 coven in that movie references worshiping a uh, an evil entity called Manal, and the reason that they used that instead of an an demon from actual like demonology or esoteric studies is because they were actually trying not to offend Wiccan and neo-pagan groups. The people oh. make yeah, the people making that movie actually consulted with several neo-pagan groups who basically helped them create an entity that had no basis in actual practice. That's a real deity worshipped in neo-pagan circles now. Interesting. They created a new god by deliberately trying not to insult any existing ones. Well, it, it just kind of goes back to what we were talking about on previous episodes about tulpas or thought forms uh, in that if it's real to these people, it's real. Like, it, yeah. it, it because it exists in their reality, it's as real as any other god. Um, and from a metaphysical perspective, I could see it very easily being that enough thoughts go towards a particular identity that an aspect of the universe will pick up that mantle, that it will be it will shape to their expectation. Absolutely. <laughs> Which I guess fundamentally is what magic is. Yeah. Rory. All right. In 1982, a phenomenal guitarist named Randy Rhodes died. That was Ozzy, Os- Ozzy Osbourne's guitarist. Okay. For when he was solo. Randy Rhodes along with Ozzy and somebody else I don't remember, wrote most of Ozzy's original album, like his first solo album and his second solo. And pretty much up until Randy died, he wrote most of Ozzy's music. Okay. There's a point. Randy Rhodes was terrified of airplanes. He'd never ridden in an airplane before. He always took the bus. Okay. He died in a plane crash. Ozzy talked him into going into this, onto this plane to try and help him get over, uh, over his fear of flying. The plane crashed. Randy Rhodes died. Mm-hmm. When Randy Rhodes was a very devout Christian. So when they wanted to release the album for like with the last of Randy's songs on it, the label was pressuring Ozzy to pose with an upside down cross, um, like on his on his neck, mm-hmm. like wearing an upside down cross. And Ozzy did not want to do it because he felt that it would be, it would disgrace Randy's memory since Randy was such a devout Christian. He did it anyway. I don't remember if it was an upside down cross or whatever, but at, at the end of the day, the label won. Okay. And 
So ultimately what happened was that his brand over, you know, the brand that he, that the label was trying to sell for Ozzy Osbourne, the Prince of Darkness, overcame and won. Crazy Train was the first song that was on his first album. It's one of the most iconic rock songs in the world. It's a great song. It's phenomenal. The guitar riff on that song was one of the first things that I ever learned how to play. And I learned it on bass. Just because it was so cool, I wanted to learn how to play it. It's not, even, it's not hard, it's just phenomenal. Ozzy Osbourne's entire goal when it came to music as an artist with Black Sabbath, as a solo artist, was his brand, right? Yeah. Um, and ultimately, that always, that always won, regardless of the scenarios. Now, I, I think that that intent matters for him. Okay. Um, I, I don't think it matters for the listener. Now, the reason why I told the story of everything that built up, that built up to it is because I feel like that story, it lingers in my brain and it resonates so much to me with what, what your goals are for your music, right? So if your goal is to just produce great music and this is your brand, but you're not trying to produce any kind of magical imagery from it, you're not, you're, this is what you're doing, that's fine. Um, I just, you know, if I was listening to it and I was, you know, and I took, you know, it, it hit me in my spiritual bones and I was able to like use that in my magical practice, that's amazing for you, you know, for that individual. However... And this is my and like and I and I believe that fully. Yeah. My the only other thing in, that I that I would say is I think the intent at creation still matters to an extent because we believe that when we talk about texts and the thing the way that things are written and the time at which things are written and we talk about how important that all of these things are when it comes to that text specifically we talk about it when we're talking about the bible a lot yes actually yes mm -hmm. um so i think it matters with music too i i believe that if you believe that listening to black sabbath or ozzy osbourne will help you on your path to enlightenment i yes i wholeheartedly agree because you can take out whatever you want out of whatever it is because like you said death to the author like you can but I believe that if I listened to Pink Floyd and did the same thing, I would get more. Okay. Because the intent behind Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd is that art, is that metaphysicalness. So I think because that intent is also there, that the combination of the two is way more potent than just trying to take something that was, you know, something to be catchy and make a dollar I'm not saying that it can't be done. I'm saying that the the intent matters too. It's like the difference between building your house out of particle board versus cedar. Right. E exactly. Yeah, I I think I think intent really does matter in 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 this situation like if I am like I don't go and listen when I'm you know when I'm trying to use music to like get myself into a meditative state I, I don't listen to my normal playlist that I would listen to driving. You know, I, I listen to music that I know is going to put me in that, in that same spot. And a lot of that music is written with that intent. You know? Yeah. No, I, I got gotcha. you. 
No, I and I think that there is something to that. I mean, if all of reality truly is consciousness, which I, I don't know, to me, I've always kind of thought in my head, you know, if magic is real, that means reality is consciousness, because that would be the only way magic could be real. <laughs> Uh, as if we At are, least as we understand it right now. Yeah, is if will, by will you're actively shaping reality. Um, and I, I, I can, I, I'd have to say the will of the artist would matter there. The one thing I was thinking about, though, I, I didn't have a chance to cover this in the uh, summary, which, by the way, this summary is missing a lot of cool stuff from the book due to time. Yeah. Uh, the book is definitely worth picking up. 100%. But beyond that... Um, I was thinking about the idea of a cut up. Now, he talked about this in per in music where uh, they would take, say, other songs and they'd cut them to pieces and mix them with other sounds from the world to make new, strange, ambient sounds that were meant to sound otherworldly. This is specifically the bands in prog rock who were using the synthesizers in the next section we're going to be reading or two sections ahead. Um and I was thinking about, well, if you could take a book, let's say I wrote a book and I had no spiritual intention with it. And then someone were to take that and rip out some different pages, highlight some specific words, connect those to make whole new sentences for their magical working. Uh, that is a literary cut up. People do that all the time for poems and stuff like that. Yeah. But I guess my point being is that I, I wonder if <laughs> it'd be it'd be you'd be you'd be better be able to negate the intent. In, the intent of the author by fundamentally changing the artwork. And that makes me think of the other Peter Bergall, Pe other Peter Bergall book we read, uh, Strange Frequencies, where he was talking about the hackers and the makers, yeah. how the act of making their own tools, making the technology that they're using to interface with the paranormal is in its own way a sort of magical act. Mm. Um, and so, I don't know, that, that was just a, a random thought kind of connected to all this that I, I wanted to get out there. No, I, I kind of I like that because I, I, I do. I, I agree. I think that like if I took, you know, 12 songs, cut them all up and made my own thing from it, that at that point, the intent from the artist isn't there because what I'm doing is taking their words, their sound, and I'm creating something completely new from it. You right know, and with the with my own intent yep transformative work it yeah. reminds me a lot of uh what people do in modern days with sigil magic yep. making personal sigils that are completely unique they're not in any occult textbooks or anything like that but still making a symbol that is personal to you and investing will into it to turn it into a magical symbol uh which you then use for your spellcraft or whatever you're going to do with it so yeah are we ready for the next section yeah let's go like Barrett before him, Arthur Brown sought to turn the rock star into a shaman, a spiritual leader who, through ritualized performance, could act as an intermediary between the audience and a greater spiritual reality, a reality which hearkened to earlier occult roots in magic and Western mysticism. Quote, Brown wasn't channeling swamis or Satan, but rather became a vessel for the occult's original expression in ancient magic performed ceremonially in religious rites and taking other forms throughout history in the medieval magician's secret room, the Renaissance Magus's workshop, and the 19th century magical order's temple. In effect, he sought to use a song as one would cast a spell to transform the consciousness of his listeners. Incorporating elements of African shamanism and dressed in elaborate costumes of crimson robes, white face paint, black teeth, and a flaming bronze helmet, 
he sought to conjure an otherworldly heir to his performances, directly engaging the occult imaginations of his audience. Adding to this, he pioneered the use of elaborate light and color shows, meant to create a hypnotic effect to force the audience into the correct frame of mind. This act of turning himself into a shaman, the character he nicknamed the Lord of Hellfire, was a groundbreaking idea for rock, one which other artists would soon employ, creating for themselves elaborate characters which could be iconized and emulated. One great example being the band Kiss, who created for themselves mythic personas as the demon, the cat, spaceman, and star child. By themselves becoming mythic figures, they can in turn offer their audiences the chance to feel as if they were directly interfacing with the divine. And nobody did that better than David Bowie. His songs cut the gamut, from aliens to cosmic terror, to bisexuality and the non-binary nature of gender, all of which take deeper meaning as Bowie developed a series of increasingly bizarre onstage personas which he used to take the audience out of their everyday reality and into his own liminal, magical world. And to look at his discography, one can see how each album reveals a greater message about where we are going and where we have been presented through an occult lens. While his first album was Sugary Pop, his second, Space Oddity, is where the Bowie we know and love begins. In the opening song, we are presented with the first character, the doomed Major Tom, floating through space detached from his ship. In this story, nobody on the ground can help Tom, and he is forced to wait and hope for celestial intervention from some greater alien or spiritual force. Biebergall argues that this is a perfect mirror for the time. The dream of world peace, which the hippies had claimed would lead to salvation, now lay in ruins. Instead, people turn their eyes to the skies with dreams of alien visitors from peaceful worlds supplanting the hope of a human-driven solution to the evils of mankind. His next album, The Man Who Sold the World, explores superhuman masters who rule the world, with Bowie never sure if he is their peer or their pawn. In this way, he promoted a sort of Gnosticism, a drive to know thyself as the path to salvation, which, to Bowie, meant embracing the elements of the self that polite society, or the masters, disapproved of. Quote, To know yourself, you must cast aside the illusion of convention, freely eat what the serpent offers, but never be ashamed of the knowledge you find. This trend would continue through his 1971 album Hunky Dory, where he made explicit references to occultism and Aleister Crowley, though it was not until his next and arguably greatest album, that we see Bowie ready to emerge from his occult cocoon to create the legendary Ziggy Stardust. In Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, Bowie takes on the role of a spiritual spaceman on a perpetual quest for self-discovery through alien landscapes. Quote, Bowie subverted the grandeur of spaceflight along with the wonder and excitement over the moonwalk and turned the cosmos into a place of ominous mystery where fallen alien messiahs would learn to play the guitar. And through this character, he synthesized the hopes and fears of the 70s without needing to return to the framework of the New Age jargon, which typified the 1960s. The truth, Ziggy showed us, was always within us. However, it is not a quest without danger, as Bowie himself learned. His album Diamond Dogs is Bowie at his lowest, riddled with occult paranoia and badly addicted to cocaine. The album takes listeners on a tour of a dark, apocalyptic landscape where love is only a memory, this being a metaphor for Bowie's personal apocalypse, 
his own inner explorations leading him into black holes of fear and drug-addled insanity. As Bowie himself said of the time period, quote, my psyche went through the roof. It just fractured into pieces. I was hallucinating 24 hours a day. The primary cause for his struggle, other than the coke addiction, being his misguided desire for magical perfection, the quest to become the perfected self as espoused by earlier occultists such as Crowley, the Rituals of the Golden Dawn, or Madame Helena Blavatsky, a goal that could neither be realized nor abandoned, leading to his breakdown. As Biebergall notes, quote, because the occult is not a system, but rather a messy accumulation of bits of tradition, synthetic beliefs, and even pure fictions in the service of commercialism, there is no final word, no final wisdom. And even for some, it becomes the ruthlessness of seeking signs, where everyday things begin to take on occult connotations, each one a reference to some deeper meaning, which again only points to another possible inference. His 1976 album, Station to Station, brought forth his next great character, the Thin White Duke, a burned-out shell of a man perpetually questing for his next belief, and as such, caught within a web of his own paranoia and unanswered desires. As one song notes, got to keep searching, oh, what will I be believing? Here was the magician who had given everything to understand the world, even his soul, and ultimately only found a hall of mirrors looking back at him. However, he was far from the last to try to create an air of mystical authority through a costume persona. Merciful Fate's lead singer, King Diamond, performed bearing a cross made of bones, signaling to the audience that he was the holder of arcane secrets. And Marilyn Manson followed Bowie's template to a T, creating a new stage persona for each album. And some artists would go even further, encouraging their listeners to become part of the magic represented by these stage shows. The band Psychic TV formed a club of listeners who enacted sigil magic on the demand of artists P. Orridge and Peter Christopherson, with the hope of doing real magic with the combined energies of all their fans. Likewise, the band Killing Joke sought to root itself in the machismo and patriarchal magics of Crowley, all of which were attempts to further synthesize music with the spiritual experience, a drive which would soon push rock to its next and greatest frontier. Which leads us to... Our fourth discussion question. Whoa. A common idea in many occult practices is the concept of a shadow name being the name used by a magical practitioner when enacting their rites, presumably to draw more power from the mythic resonance of the name. Do you see rock stars like Bowie as another step in that tradition? or And do you see this phenomenon playing out anywhere else in our culture? So, yes, I, I think that Bowie doing the performances was was similar enough to uh, a shadow name, you know. Sure. Since uh, in, in a lot of ways, what he the thing like the way that he would say it, like you know he, that he was an artist and all of this was just him like doing all of this on stage, you know, whatever. I can't remember the exact quotes that from from the book. Yeah, but. I think because that because his intent uh, was that these characters were part of the performance and his performance was intended to be magical in nature. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that that is uh, at least that's what that that's what he was doing. Um, now, personally, I I I haven't done a lot of um studies into the why 
behind like why you would use a shadow name. So I can't really speak into that outside of like the surface level understanding that I have. Um, but I, I, I think that the, you know, you, you see it elsewhere just when you see people who, who mask their real name when they're doing things like me. You know, I'm not saying that Rory is a shadow name for me, but if I was doing magic and utilizing the same name because Rory's not my real name, it would be a, uh, be that of a similar concept. But ultimately, like, I, I don't have a very big framework on shadow names, so I can't say a whole lot there. Um, but yeah. Okay. So the thing with the thing with names and the thing with shadow names, from my interpretation, is that it serves a very important psychological purpose, even when it's not necessarily serving an occult purpose of changing your name, depending on the situation that you're in or the era of your life that you're living through can be very important for kind of breaking things into a before and after and kind of also allowing you to compartmentalize your life in a way that can keep things from getting confused and can possibly allow you to do like, okay, instead of just trying to get lost in my own ramble here, um, I'm going to use some of my true crime like knowledge of a very common thing that you see with abusive cults is that when people join the cult, they get their name taken away and they get assigned a new one. And that is an incredibly powerful psychological tool to kind of help slam the door on whatever life they had going on before the cult of like that person's not you anymore. Th this is the new you. Simon's gone. L like, like, like Simon's gone. You're Ken now or whatever. And in a pop culture example, one of the mangas that I was super into when I was a kid there was a character that had committed a grave crime that his society was like, he needs to be sentenced to death. And the local temple stepped in and they're like, let us do something. And they essentially performed a ceremony where they took away his old name and they give him, they gave him a new one. And they're like, Gonan's dead. It's Hakai now. It's the, the, the person that you wanted sentenced to death is dead. That person's gone. This is a new one. Hmm. And I, I think with shadow names and craft names and things like that and with sort of the rock like the the rock stage personas it probably serves the exact same thing of nothing I'm doing here has to impact what happens when I leave if I don't want it to because these things are not happen Jay is not doing these things Alistair is doing mm. these things or whatever so I guess from a metaphysical perspective it compartmentalizes the mystic into its own box yes and it, I can see it also possibly if you having if you have lots of different names that you're using in different situations it could speed you towards enlightenment by bringing you towards that ego death of mm -hmm. if I can have a thousand names and be a thousand people, is there truly an I or is there just or am I just a sun catcher and whatever color I'm reflecting at the moment is the name that I'm bearing? I mean, that makes that that makes sense, too, because even Bowie did that. Like he would reference the other characters as separate entities. Yeah. Uh even to the point that when he stopped performing as Ziggy, like it was a big thing. He's like, Ziggy's gone now. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know what this makes this conversation makes me think of? I mean, I, I know this is a non-metaphysical example of it, but 
uh, dead names for trans people. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The the act of claiming that new name seems to be a very important uh, emotional, psychological stepping point in the trans narrative. You know, it, that uh, that actually like this whole thing made me think. I wonder if for some people they use shadow names as a method of protection too. True. So, and I, I wonder that because of course I'm thinking about fairies. Um, and, you know, in Faelor, your true name is important. It's very important. And it, it, your name holds power. So utilizing a shadow name in your practice may be an effort to protect your true name. I. Huh. I can definitely see that too, especially if like, like you said, if you're working with fae or demons or like other like entities that might be very difficult to keep at arm's length of the shadow name could be a measure of this thing can't follow me home because it doesn't actually know who I am. Right. And that's just me spitballing, you know, because like I said, I don't have a lot of, uh, a, a lot of framework or experience with the uh, the concept of shadow names outside of like utilizing them in in like tabletop games that we've played. I'm aware of them in an academic sense, you know. And I, thinking about where we see it, you know, it's interesting because the more I thought about it, there are so many artists out there who are doing this actively right now. I uh, think Daft Punk. I know they just retired, but still know their faces. Guar and Lordy, both of which perform in monster makeup. And it was a big deal when the lead singer of Lordy got photographed without it because mm -hmm. he wanted that to be his public identity. Insane clown posse. Insane clown um Mexican luchadors. Yeah. Well, that's huge for yeah. them, too. Oh, absolutely. Well, and yeah. so you think we we do take a lot of pride. Just as humans, from a non-magical perspective, we take a lot of pride and identity from our name, from our uh our persona that we're putting out into the world. Well, yeah, like I said, even for, for me on the show, because I don't use my, you know, I use a stage name. Yeah. If you will, you know, it's same kind of concept. Absolutely. It is. And maybe there is something in that, uh, metaphysically speaking in that perhaps the act of taking on this mythic name puts you into that liminal state. Yeah, you know, it, it might it actually allow for you to do magic because, well, I know Nick can't do magic, but Thaddeus can do magic. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly it. And it also reminds me of like with 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 dissociative disorders of the idea that and nobody quote me on this because just despite being trained in psychology, I understand very little about uh, the modern understanding of DID because it seems like the understanding of DID changes approximately every six months. And but the the basic concept of it, at least a couple of decades ago, was it is possible to become so traumatized and feel so deeply helpless that the only way that you can regain your agency is to essentially break off a part of you and put all of your anger and all of your righteous infuriated desire to reclaim your own power into that separate part of you and essentially create this alternate person that happens to live in your head but is not you and can do all of the things that you cannot interesting and it, it you you see that especially in DC with like superheroes of like uh, particularly I'm thinking about like Batman where he actually considers Bruce Wayne to be his false persona in most interpretations in his head he refers to himself as Batman Bruce Wayne is the fake person interesting interesting are we ready for section five yeah yes.
The next and final occult tributary of rock, which Biebergall explores, is cosmic rock, primarily through the band Hawkwind. We begin at the Isle of Wight Festival, a UK music festival where, in 1970, the signs of things to come were written on the walls. During the hippie movement, festivals were for the fans. They were often free, had a core political or spiritual message, and were as much about fostering a sense of belonging and community as they were the music itself. The Isle of Wight, however, stood in stark contrast. Tickets not only cost money, but were prohibitively expensive to many in the counterculture. The commercialization of the event was a sign that festivals would become the domain of promoters, sponsors, and the in-crowd who had the cash to pay their way in. And it was here, in the mess of tents and temporary dwellings erected by the have-nots outside the festival grounds, that Hawkwind decided to put on a free show. In this, they hoped to show that defiance and rebellion still lived at the heart of their music. And in that rebellion, the occult. Hawkwind saw music as a form of mesmerism, a way to put the audience into trance-like states in which the occult imagination can be engaged and the audience coaxed into believing they are part of some greater spiritual truth. The first space rock band, Hawkwind mixed psychedelic rock, hard rock, and many nods to science fiction, seen best in their second album, In Search of Space, which tells the story of a group of stoned aliens exploring the cosmos and, through that, themselves. This is, in that light, a form of cosmic Gnosticism. Outer space intermingles with inner space, both frontiers which must be explored and mastered to understand the self. What is important to understand here is that science fiction, prior to the 1960s and 1970s, was almost exclusively the domain of pulp novels about cosmic exploration, space babes, and strong-jawed heroes here to bring American values to Mars. The science fiction of Hawkwind, on the other hand, was entrenched in the mundane human experience, an idea they got from author Michael Moorcock, who is credited with grounding science fiction and using it to symbolically discuss the issues of the time, a trend which would lead directly to Star Trek, known for its commentary on race, economics, and other social issues of the day, all hidden behind the safe veil of science fiction. Hawkwind's mesmerizing performances, meant to instill a sense of wonder in the audience, can be best described in a quote from Moorcock. Quote, I believe that the artist is a shaman, in that you provide your public, tribe, with images, resonances, stories which symbolize their relationships with the physical world and its questions. This futuristic trend soon birthed progressive rock, marked for electronic or synthetic sounds and deep experimentation, such as the band Yes's 1973 album Tales from Topographic Oceans, which had an 88-minute runtime spread out over only four songs, all of which presented eerie sounds meant to evoke an alien or occult landscape. Prog rock became the realm of synthesizers, acoustic guitars, and spiritual excess, with many bands trying and failing to capture the shamanic airs of previous stars. Eventually, progressive rock would dwindle until it became the purview of the New Age movement. While other kinds of rock, such as punk and metal, continued to thrive, rock music within the New Age movement ceased to be about spiritual rebellion and became representative of just another religion people can pick from. However, maybe that is just as well, because rock had already done its work and infiltrated popular music with its calls to occult secrets and rebellion. Quote, In almost every aspect of rock and popular music, the occult's influence could be felt. 
Even as more top 40 acts turned to electronics and the digital studio, the underlying agitation was the same as it had been when young people first tossed a guitar strap over their shoulders. If you make enough noise, no matter your instrument, you can keep the old gods alive forever. In the final chapter of the book, Biebergall looks ahead to the popular music of today, which he argues could not exist without the trails initially blazed by rock and roll into the mystic landscape of the occult imagination. For example, he notes the popular conspiracy theory that Jay-Z is a member of the Illuminati, a defunct mystical organization from the late 18th century, which modern conspiracy theorists have turned into a placeholder for any sort of nefarious secret society of elites. A conspiracy theory which Jay-Z himself does not seem too motivated to end, with his constant references to Aleister Crowley, magic, Baphomet, and other occult imagery in his songs and music videos, which he claims are there to create dissonance in the mind of the listener in order to promote new thinking. However, much like the rock stars of the past who crafted mythic personas for themselves to create a sense of spiritual authority, Biebergall argues that Jay-Z is presenting himself as a source of mystic knowledge. And as Black Sabbath learned during the Satanic Panic, regardless of what he might say to the contrary, both supporters and detractors will project their hopes and fears onto the landscape of his music. To the young rebellious soul, his music and symbols may hearken to a wild age of freedom. To their conservative parents, proof that evil now lives in Spotify. Likewise, Biebergall takes a moment to analyze Madonna's 2012 Super Bowl halftime show through this lens. For the performance, Madonna dressed herself like an Egyptian hierophant and came onto stage atop a throne pulled by slaves. Surrounded by armored angels and backup dancers dressed as deities, she performed a 13-minute mashup of her songs. This overt occult imagery, coupled with her interest in and support of the mystical practice of Kabbalah, gave conspiracy theorists all they needed to project their fears onto her. As Biebergall notes, quote, Madonna's costume resembles Ishtar, the Sumerian goddess of love, war, and sex. Madonna's throne, flanked by sphinxes, is the perfect rendition of the chariot in the tarot deck. The first song, Vogue, ends with a winged sun disc illuminating the stage, a symbol one blogger claims is used by all major secret societies. And I would love, love to know where they learned that. <laughs> that they have a source in every single major secret society. Anyway, just as with rock, the occult dressing allowed the music to become something more for the viewer and instills in it a spirit which can be seen as both enlightening or terrifying, depending on your frame of reference. On the surface, this and other modern incarnations of the occult in music may be seen as just spectacle drawn from a common pool of myth, religion, and esoteric ideas. But as Biebergall counters, quote, the theater of rock began long ago in the smoky UFO club where Arthur Brown wore his flaming helmet, when Hawkwind hypnotized their fans with lights, when Bowie came on stage not as himself, but as crash-landed Ziggy. Madonna's show is simply a later encounter with rock's Dionysian roots, ones that can't be severed. Maybe the conspiracy theorists are right. We are being mesmerized by popular music, and it's an inside job. There is no all-seeing eye in a pyramid scheming with the music industry. It's just who we have always been, a civilization that demands that music shake our spirits. Which brings us to our final discussion question. So for this entire book, we have been reading about how the occult gave rock its fundamental spirit and kept it alive. Let's flip the script. 
Do you think that the occult would have survived without rock? And how do you think we would view modern occultism if not for rock and roll? I I absolutely think the occult would have survived. Um, and I base that largely on on what I was what I was trying to articulate earlier about the kind of symbiotic nature of the devil and Christianity. There will always be a dominant culture and therefore there will always be a counterculture. And those two things by and large rely on each other because that's just how it works in binary systems is they become intrinsically at odds with and dependent upon each other. And like you mentioned, like we were talking about earlier in the summary and like Biebergall was going into in the book, the occult is often used as an alternative path to the to the authority prescribed to organized religion, because this is natural in humans. There will always be people born into these strict hierarchical communities that have a natural urge to rebel against them. And it's then natural for those people to be drawn to things that are inherently subversive and dangerous and kind of antagonistic to the establishment. And the occult is a super easy way to do that, especially if you're a teenager and especially if you're filled with rage and a developing ego. Um, so I I think it might look quite different if if rock and roll hadn't been a thing. Um, I think our understanding of what an upside down cross means would be completely different because that's on the guy that's on the Pope's throne, guys. That's not mm-hmm. it doesn't mean what you what you do. Well, it does mean what you think it means now because you people took it and you changed it. And actually, that's awesome. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> the point is the, the occult will the cult the occult will likely always survive because Humans like playing with tarot cards and shiny rocks and they like drawing patterns in the stars and saying, what if those patterns explain my destiny? And they like they like making potions and doing fun songs and dances that talk about demons and fairies. So I I think this is something that's just in us. I think it's something that's always been in us and it probably for a purely biological explanation, I think it's just the. I think it's just the emanation of having pareidolia while also having a frontal cortex, a prefrontal cortex is we we human beings love ascribing meanings to patterns. It hits the dopamine button in us like almost nothing else. Uh, It also, uh, like we mentioned earlier in the episode, it gives them a form of power over an ultimately chaotic universe. Absolutely it does and that's the other thing that really hits the dopamine button in us is it's that that's the that's the reason why babies go through that phase where they will just grab things and throw them and then giggle when you go and pick them up. That is a baby learning for the first time that it can exert will over its environment and alter things that are happening around it. And so Yes, the 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 occult will always survive because human beings will always have a natural and quite frankly completely healthy urge to exert control over their environment. So I agree. I, I think that the occult would exist without rock and roll. Um I think there would be a lot less knowledge of the occult out there right now. Because we wouldn't have gotten the booms that we got in the 60s and 70s, 
um, mm-hmm. because those were primarily influenced by rock artists. We likely wouldn't have Gary Lockman. Probably not. No. In, in the way that we do. And fuck, I mean, if you don't know that we're fans of at least his, uh, you know, his writing, then, you know, that would be a big blow. Blondie had some good jams. Well, he was only on the first album, so. I have no idea if the jams I like are from the first album. Me neither. So I'm going to pretend that they are. Sure. <laughs> um, look them up, dude. No, because if I look them up, it's going to shatter the illusion I built in my head. And that's the occult. <laughs> I I think rock would have, without the occult, I think rock would have been a lot more boring. It might have died. It, it might not have even existed. And therefore, how many genres of music would not exist now? Punk wouldn't exist. Metal. Metal wouldn't exist. Therefore, most of the music I listen to with the exception of ska, wouldn't exist. But I listen to mostly ska punk, so then arguably that wouldn't exist. Uh, pop would look completely different. Yeah, because pop is an offspring of rock and roll. Um, I'm not I'm not sure what the loss of rock and roll would have done to rap and hip-hop. Nothing. But, uh, they, okay, they wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, some rap and, rap and hip-hop. We wouldn't have had Limp Bizkit. But, Yay! <laughs> oh, well, I mean, and you also mm. wouldn't have, have whatever song sample rock, because that happens pretty frequently. Well, sure. Yeah. But hip-hop hip hop, and, you know, hip-hop rap, those, those would be just fine. You know, that's, I, that's good. I that's think, good. I think one thing that we would definitely happen, though, is you wouldn't see occult symbols in Hot Topic. Yeah. Like, like, you know, you go in Hot Topic, you see pentagrams, Eye of Horus, uh, Egyptian onks. I don't think any of that stuff would have become as prevalent as and as common in our society had it not been for the 60s and the 70s and the massive occult infusions oh, that yeah. happened. One could make the argument that this show wouldn't exist without rock and roll in the occult because I wouldn't have had any interest in this if it wasn't for music. Right. Well, and I think that there's a solid chance that just the paranormal community at large would be significantly smaller. Oh, yeah. Especially because if you look back to 60s, you had the metaphysical conferences, and that's where a lot of this paranormal stuff was discussed back then before everything got split out into this is a Bigfoot conference, this is right. a UFO conference. Um, and I'm, I question if those would exist had the community that sprung up around psychedelic rock not happened. Yeah. I, I don't think American Satanism would look too much like it does now without without bands like like black sabbath yeah no for sure i mean the question like you have the question at that point it's like does anton levey found the church of satan without the influence that rock had on the social sphere or does he find another reason to have orgies and cosplay right it's just like i i think the point that biebergall made here that rock you know the the occult pretty much is what drove rock and roll to like the height that it that it's at is true um especially because arguably um without the beatles we don't have rock and roll the way that we have it now correct you know without the beatles it doesn't exist period i will that is a hill i will die on and i don't really like the beatles you know, I respect their music. They have quite a few songs that I do dig, but like ultimately, like overall, I'm just like, yeah, they're all right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm the same way. I get it. I like Hey Jude a whole lot. Yeah. And uh, I like, you know, I'm not going to go into the Beatles songs I like because it doesn't matter. Um, but I, and, and without that influence on rock, our society today would look 100% different. It would not, because rock and roll was 
fucking defining for America. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it came from British bands. Woo. Um, while the occult, I believe, would survive without rock and roll because humans innately want to like want to learn a lot of this stuff, like seek out and try to find their spirituality in whatever form. Um, but without rock, it wouldn't be as prevalent now. It wouldn't be as quote mainstream. It's not really, but you know, as it is where people understand that there are other faiths outside of their own and other ways of life. Um, I don't think that would be as prevalent anymore. There wouldn't have been the, as hard a pushback against, uh, against the Christian, uh, majority because rock is what motivated a lot of kids to push back because they didn't have anything else to feel. And then that, or any other way to, they didn't know that there was any other way to feel. And then they hear that music. And once again, it strikes that, that, that part of your soul. It hits the spiritual G spot. And yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and then they go and they start diving into all the same, the, these same texts and start researching and learning on their own. But without that kick from the music, they're just still looking and they just don't know where to look. You, you know what I wonder? So we have so rock stars, especially you don't know, think about the Beatles or uh, Mick Jagger. They, they, they did become these venerated figures. And mm-hmm. I know we were talking about uh, like Kiss, for example. They took on these mythic personas to somewhat in a way become gods. They are becoming something more than a man that the fans can connect to and worship in a way. And then think about listening to a, a bit, one band's songs over and over again, having posters of them on the wall, screaming at, at their live appearances. It's not dissimilar from worship. No. And what I what I wonder is if we'd have the same modern uh, culture of celebrity worship had it not been for rock and roll. Mm. That's a good, that's, that's a really good question. That's a, I mean, the Beatles were really the first, one of the biggest. Oh, Elvis. Was. Yeah, Elvis. Yeah, yeah. Elvis and well, and the Beatles and all of them, like the idea, like I I can't recall anything before them being as heavily intrusive into their lives uh, before. I mean, like it existed, of course. Yeah. But I, 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 it like with Elvis, especially like fucking the doors blew off. Well, I think part of that is think about when Elvis started performing that was when we were starting to reach the point that we could easily communicate with the entire world. Mm-hmm. So you could have an artist whose songs could reach beyond their their local area. They didn't need to travel to Europe to tour European concert halls yeah. if there was a radio network in Europe that could play their records. Yeah, And that's that's exactly what I was thinking is that I think... I don't know what celebrity culture would look like because Elvis and the Beatles and all of all of these bands that we were discussing, like especially in the early parts of the book, coincided with the creation of mass media and with the realization of how much you could commercialize these things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think we beat that question to death. (laughs) Are we ready to move to our about the author? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so uh, some of this you guys have already heard back from way back in episode three, and I tried to find some more information to add to it, and I could not. So, Biebergall studied religion and culture at Harvard Divinity School. 
He describes himself in his Twitter bio as a writer, failed mystic, and dungeon master, as he is a huge D&D nerd. His essays and reviews have appeared in imprints such as The Times Literary Supplement, Boing Boing, The Believer, The Quietus, and NewYorker.com. His articles run the gamut from horror to science fiction analysis to fringe topics such as magic and mysticism. He is the author of Season of the Witch, obviously, as well as Strange Frequencies. And he has authored two other books, Too Much to Dream, A Psychedelic American Boyhood, and The Faith Between Us, A Jew and a Catholic Search for the Meaning of God, which he authored with Scott Korb. Ooh, that sounds interesting. He also edited an anthology called Appendix N, which is a collection of the fiction and literary influences which inspired Gary Gygax to create Dungeons and Dragons. Neat. Yeah, I thought so. He also published a short story titled A Static of Names, which I could not find. <laughs> uh, he's also lectured for the Missatonic Institute of Horror Studies, and he lives in Cambridge with his wife, Amy, and his son, Sam. And that's what we got. Well, actually, we got one more. We got one more thing that we have to tell you guys. Yeah, that, that's for housekeeping. Yeah, that's what we're doing now, right? Well, any final notes on the book? Oh, right. I'm sorry. Final thoughts. I liked it. Yeah, it was great. No, I had a lot of fun with it. I, I was definitely more challenged by the book than I thought I'd be about a book about rock and roll. But uh, <laughs> that should have known better. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, Peter B. Yeah, Peter B. Uh, one of the more challenging authors we've done on this show. Definitely yeah. uh, up there. Him, with Gary Lockman. Gary Lockman's up there. I think with I think those are the two most challenging yeah. in terms of like the density of the work. Yeah, those are the top so far. Though I'm not going to lie to you, I got some. I got a, a couple of written down on my little notes here that I think are going to be challenging for us. So. I I think I think twin telepathy might be more difficult than I'm anticipating it'll be, just because I think there's going to be a lot of actual hard science data in that one. Get ready to take some notes. Which actually moves us <laughs> into housekeeping. 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 Uh, so next week we are going to talk. To Peter Biebergall. What? Yep, he's coming on for a Midnight Chats. It's going to come out on March 30th, so look forward to that. Uh, and in two weeks from today, we're going to be talking about a book called Twin Telepathy by Guy L. Playfair. And Jay is going to be leading us on that fascinating journey into ESP and twins. Yep. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be um, really, really different. Well, yeah, especially because it's a def... It, regarding ESP, we've done a lot of high-level uh, yeah. reviews of the topic. This is a very niche topic within yeah. ESP studies, which is going to be interesting. Yeah, I think it's going to be def It's going to be real different. Twin studies are, in many ways, the the root of our our scientific discoveries because, especially twins that are separated and raised in different environments, are a a, a beautiful tool for like for testing for controls. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, I think it's going to be a great time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But if you liked what you heard here on this show, and honestly, like, here's the thing. If you have feedback for us, something you didn't like or something you think that we could do better on, let us know. We want that feedback so that we can continue to grow and provide you with the best content that we can deliver. And do that by sending us an email at noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. And also give us a follow on Twitter at noctivigantpod. And I'm at Mix Rory Wicks. I'm at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, please, please give us a five-star review. 
or any star, just review us. Yeah, just review us. I mean, I prefer the five stars because, you know, we put a lot of we put a lot of work into the show and the five stars make me warm and fuzzy on the inside. Give it four stars so Rory feels bad. Oh, don't do that. Give us five stars. <laughs> uh, also, we have a Noctivigant Reddit account, uh, Noctivigant podcast. I'm there if anyone wants to chat with me. Uh, we have an Octivigant Tumblr account, an Octivigant podcast, where I basically just post memes about the books that we've read. Which are choice memes. They're funny. But thank you. And we have an Instagram that I am on occasionally. Uh, mostly I post pictures of the Noctivigant cryptids, as I call them. Uh, and that's an Octivigant underscore podcast. In case you didn't pick up, those are our pets. Yes. Two dogs, two cats. All four of them are insanely cute. Oh, yeah. So I think that's it. I, I think that's it. Okay. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe on those midnight roads. Stay safe out there. Don't get lost. So in the book, they mentioned that Ozzy Osbourne thought that the bat that he bit the head off of on stage was rubber. And I don't believe that for a second because I've never picked up a live bat and thought rubber.